This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. So, Miss Mayday, how do you know if a zombie likes someone? I don't know. They ask for seconds. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay here's cute. another one. What has hundreds of ears but can't listen? I don't know. A cornfield. Mm. Like a corn maze. Maze. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So as you could tell, we've decided for the month of October, we're going to cover a couple of Halloween topics, but we aren't doing the common ones that everybody knows about. Like the man who killed Halloween because he poisoned pixie sticks. We're not covering that. Instead, we decided to go well off the rails. And what we're doing is people that were executed on Halloween. Interesting. Throughout hundreds of years. So anyway, I don't know why I thought a lot more people would have been executed on Halloween, but there's really not that many. And a lot of them happened so far ago that it was really hard to get information. So we have multiple short stories and then one super convoluted one. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we're going to start in Hancock County, Maine, according to the trial transcript, which I actually had a really good time reading because we're in 1811. And so like an example of this trial transcript is after fade then and there being feloniously willfully and malice afterthought did make an assault and said Ebenezer ball, a certain gun of a value of $2 then and there charged with gunpowder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I guess they didn't have a good work in S in the trial transcript. Sometimes it was S and sometimes it was F. So it got really confusing to try and figure out these darn words. But as you can imagine, that was just a small little excerpt of that child transcript, (laughs) but I made my way through it. So here's the story. On January 28th, 1811, Ebenezer Ball, who was 32 at the time, shot Deputy Sheriff John Talston Downs, and he was not like an official deputy. He was deputized for this specific arrest of Ebenezer, and it was because of this, like he happened to be present, he was shot in the stomach when he tried to arrest him for counterfeiting silver dollars because we're in 1811. So this is like making counterfeit money in the 1800s, which is not what you would think of today. Yeah. So in the United States at that time, we, we hadn't really solidified our current currency system. So this was before we had official mints in our country. I'm going to go back before 1811 to when the United States first won its independence, right? So in 1783, at the time, we did not have currency. We had just separated from England 
So what were we using at that time, right? We just became a free country. How do we continue with trade now that we do not have the British coin? Isn't this the whole wooden nickels thing that came about? So yeah, there's a little couple different stories, but I'm specifically just going to talk a little bit about origin of like silver and how we have counterfeit of silver. So at the time in Mexico, there was a version of a silver dollar and it was called the Real de Ocho or Reales. And it was the most common coin in circulation in the colonies at the time. It was natural for them to choose something similar to the silver dollar as the monetary system in the new colonies. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about this Real de Ocho. It was the Spanish dollar. It was something that they refer to as hard, quote unquote. It's simply a hard peso. It was minted in the mid 16th century, and it was the most important currency in the world well into the 19th century. So it was used for trade through like the Spanish empire and it got minted in Mexico from silver, like pure silver. Okay. It was quite large. It was based on weight. It was accepted everywhere in the world at the time that was trading and using currency. And in the United States, because we didn't have a system of minting, the first few attempts to mint were not very successful. We began minting in the United States, I think, with silver, but it was kind of very modeled similarly after the reales. At the time when this was happening, when we were trying to make our own little silver coins, it was very common that our silver coins did not contain 100% pure silver, and they were kind of mixed and blended with other metals. The United States decided to keep the Mexican coin, the silver dollar, as a part of our own legal tender as well, up until 1857. At that point, the United States wanted to only start utilizing our own circulated silver dollars. One of the first minting of our silver dollars would have been in 1804. So theoretically, what Ebenezer was trying to counterfeit would have been what was the 1804 minted coin. However, it was weird because it was issued as an 1804 coin, but it was actually minted in 1803. So it was kind of a weird situation, which all allowed people to kind of counterfeit because it really was difficult and new, so new that people really didn't realize what was real or what was not. Okay. The way that they would do that is because the real was so much larger than the American silver dollar at that time, they could melt down the reales and create blended oh. versions of part silver and part like copper or something. And make it cheaper. And make more okay. Spanish, you know, from the one Spanish dollar, to, they can make multiple American dollars. Now I get why you had to start that far back. Okay. Yeah. And it was interesting because one, another counterfeiter from Rochester at that time was doing the same thing. He basically was making a piece of eight, they call it, from the Spanish reales, reales de ocho, but with only like 20% silver instead of the American government, which was pressing 91% silver. Okay. And then the Mexican one that you said was 100%. 
Yeah. Okay. So I guess there was a really big counterfeit ring kind of in Rochester, you know, upper New York or whatever. So I'm not quite sure if Ebenezer may have been a part of this ring, but this is probably why they sent out a bounty for him and his arrest. Yeah. So it was, it was like a whole convoluted arrest warrant kind of thing. And because I'm not a hundred percent sure if this was considered treason or a federal offense, because obviously he's doing federal funds or if it was local, but either way, he definitely was counterfeiting silver dollars. John went to go arrest him being deputized for the specific arrest along with two other people. So there was witnesses like that's the other thing. And so Ebenezer was basically saying that he went into the woods with his firearms to hunt birds or something. And then these guys like approached him and he was like, stay away. And they went to arrest him anyway. So he says that he shot not really in self-defense, but just shot out of fear of arrest. We'll put it that way. And so he did make contact with John in the stomach and John wound up dying the following day. So he definitely did not die immediately. And on his deathbed, the only thing that he asked was, have you caught ball? And that was according to his brother. Mm. So like I said, there were witnesses to the shooting. So it was really thought that Ebenezer would just plead guilty. But instead, like I said, he pled not guilty, claimed self-defense ish and said it was never premeditated. And that meant that it was not officially murder at the time. Mm -hmm. But the jury was like, no, you literally knew there was an arrest warrant for you, went into the woods with guns and then shot and killed a man. So the jury found him guilty of murder and he was sentenced to death. And there were numerous appeals and then stays of execution and then appeals and stays. And long story short, although it doesn't seem long because this happened in January and on Halloween of the same year, he was hanged, Okay, which we've been over that execution method a couple times in this show. So we won't focus too much on the hanging. Mm-hmm. The next one is a, is a beast of one. <laughs> and you may have heard about this one in the past, but we're going to go into some details. So we're now in 1904 in Beijing, China. And this is when, and I do not want to butcher these names. Wang Wiken, Wiken. Um, that would be like pronounced Wei Chin. Okay, Wei Chin, and he was executed on Halloween for the 1901 murders of 12 people from a rival family, and that included a three-year-old child. That incident happened April 26, 1901, and he and his men of his faction, we'll call it that, broke into the home of Li Zhicheng. Yeah. Okay. The reason is because they had a feud over property a lot. And so they were suing each other and Li Zhicheng, he was imprisoned over some of their earlier disputes that went a little bit too far. Now, while he was in prison this latest time, his wife, Madame Ma, slit her own throat after she just couldn't take it anymore. It was just too much turmoil. So she committed suicide by slitting her own throat. Because of this, he was released from prison. Let's just say it was like a compassionate release because his wife was now dead. So now this is when Wang was like, okay, this is it. Let's settle this forever. And so it was believed that this is what triggered the murders that happened April 26th. Now, Wang was a minor official. And so he had some powerful friends and probably believed that he was going to get away with what 
transpired that night. But what he didn't account for was that this was the time that the Capitol was actually occupied by a foreign military. So because of that, there was an official law book of the dynasty of the King Code. It was this whole thing that he didn't account for that started this year because of this foreign military occupation. Yeah. So this is actually the Qing Code, Mm. and this is from the Qing Dynasty. Gotcha. It's really interesting. I guess I'm not quite sure how he misunderstood and and thought that he was not going to be subjected to this law book. Well, if you don't pay attention to the laws, you have no clue what you could be found guilty of. Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) I mean, we still have people this day that don't understand what our current laws are because of all the propositions that have passed. Yeah. But like murdering 12 people. (laughs) Well, if you've got, I mean, we have seen some famous people get away with some pretty heinous acts because they have enough money and powerful friends. Okay. So so is that what it was? Is that he just thought that he was going to be above above the law? Yep. Okay. All right. So we'll talk a little bit about what the Qing code is then. So there was specifically, I guess, certain articles in the Qing code that dictated punishments for specific types of crimes. In 1740, this code was established and it was their entire book on criminal and civil laws. And it was a set of instructions to all local officials known as magistrates, it was to give them instructions for punishment for every possible offense that the emperor believed was necessary in order to kind of maintain law and order. So it was a book that was published. All the magistrates had to enforce it equally. And it clearly defined like this punishment for this offense. Gotcha. Well, that's really nice and straightforward. Yeah, it was really smart. And so it was disseminated across the country to all of the magistrates. And at first, it just looks like a giant book of punishments. In practice, the judicial system at the time really focused on sort of hearing the facts of the case. So they kind of had a similar court system, a trial system. Okay. So they would hear the facts of the case, and then they would verify the wording of the laws in order to make sure that the punishment fit the offense as at the time, because they were Confucians, yeah, how they preferred that to make sure that equal justice was being served according to the words of the law. Okay. So, so like each article, it's, if you did this, this is your punishment. We need to make sure that this is the exact thing that you did. Correct. And it doesn't fit into a different article instead. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So the way that this would work was that they would first look at the first part of the code, which was called the five punishments. And this was a scheduling of traditional penalties that was used throughout the code for both criminal and civil law violations. And they were ranked based on their severity. So the first of the five punishments was what they referred to the lightest penalty. So it gets progressively harsher in penalty. So the lightest penalty was being beaten with a light bamboo stick. And then there were five degrees from 10 to 50 strokes. And the purpose of this was to physically punish and also to make one feel ashamed. Okay. So pretty light punishment. Respectively to what we're going to wind up at. Right. (laughs) So then the next level of punishment was meeting with a heavy bamboo stick. And those degrees ranged from 60 to hundred strokes. And the number of strokes was later reduced by 
the Qing after the dimensions of both light and heavy bamboo sticks uh, were being enlarged. So okay. at a certain point in history, they decided to make those sticks larger and then they mitigated that based on the weight of the bamboo stick. But again, similar to the first light punishment, it's based on the number of strokes and whatever you did gets as equal number of strokes. Gotcha. Then the third level was penal servitude. And so you were basically required and forced into labor in a region different from your own home. So you were sent to another province and it was intended to enslave and disgrace you as the law violator. And this punishment involved a certain amount of time. It ranged between one to three years And it also had and carried with it 60 to a hundred strokes or lashings with the heavy bamboo stick. Okay. There were no prisons at this time. So it was basically just like a prison camp or just you go work in this area. And there was somebody assigned to kind of witness that you were serving your sentence. Okay. The next one, the fourth level was exile for life. And it was considered a severe penalty. And it removed the person from all of their family and their rituals at the graves of their ancestors, which is a huge thing in Chinese culture. So to be exiled is, you know, to separate yourself from your ancestors. Right. And that is very, very severe in the culture. So whatever you did, there's degrees of this punishment in terms of how far away from your ancestral home you would be exiled. They had to go about 700 to a thousand miles from their home. Mm-hmm. And they would also receive a hundred strokes with the heavy bamboo stick. And this penalty was sometimes used by the emperor because he could not bear to inflict the death penalty. As again, they were Confucians at the time. And that was their sort of religious beliefs. This was kind of the equivalent to a very, very, very severe capital punishment to be exiled from your ancestral home. Now the last level was their death penalty because it was used very rarely and only in the extreme, extreme severe offenses. It is really, really what we would consider cruel. Yeah. It had two degrees. So the first one was punishable by strangulation with a cord and a beheading. But then the Qing dynasty decided to add the third degree of death by slicing. And so this was what the ancient Chinese tactic called Ling Qi is. It's translated loosely to slow slicing or lingering death or death by a thousand cuts. It was a slow death by numerous cuts to the body. And then eventually you would be beheaded. And it was only reserved for those extremely wicked crimes, such as treason or murdering a parent or grandparent. And the death penalty system, the way that it was sentenced, you would either be sentenced immediate or delayed. So immediate was before the autumn court met and then delayed would be after the annual autumn court met. They wanted to always kind of meet in the middle to decide whether or not they were going to reduce the sentence to one of the lesser of the five punishments. Um, And that give the emperor the ability to approve all death sentences, basically. So the emperor had to agree in order for you to get this death penalty. You know, you would either get the strangulation, the beheading, 
or the death by thousand slices. Yeah. In this case, we obviously are talking about the death by a thousand cuts. Okay. So Ling Chi, and that's because he violated article 287. And this is a very specific article. So what it is, if someone kills three members or more from a single family, and the reason behind that is because it's considered a family annihilation, if Mm -hmm. you will, where you kill all generations, which is why the three-year-old was killed. So that way that line dies. Yes. And so that's what they said that he did was this. And is consistent with being at the fifth level of punishment. This actually was banned in 1905 because he was one of the last people executed and it was outlawed. And part of the reason theoretically is because Wang's execution by this method was actually very publicized because there was a lot of French soldiers there at the time and they took photos of this execution happening, his specifically. So it's extremely well documented. The photos are readily available. I have not decided whether or not we're putting them on social media or not because they are not. It's torture. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's and basically so, torture. So I probably won't, but feel free to <clears throat> Google it. It's 1904 Wang execution by Ling Chi. So anyway, his specifically, we're going to get into the gruesome details because we have exactly how they did this on him. So it's not necessarily death by a thousand cuts. I mean, obviously somebody would most likely die before then. He was tied to a tripod in the middle of a bunch of civilians and soldiers. He was nude, like completely stripped naked. His head was strapped, a rope across his forehead to hold his head up. So that way all present would be able to see his face during this entire process, because it's meant to If you were in anguish, again, it's a method of disgrace if you start exhibiting crying or anything like that because you're not stoic. And so it's set up so that way the civilians would be able to see if you did this. So his specific execution, his breasts were both sliced off. His biceps were then sliced off. His quads were then sliced off. And they considered this enough of a punishment. He was either going to die on his own quickly, or they just didn't want to extend this any more than they had to. And so the executioner wound up piercing his heart very quickly. So, I mean, obviously not quickly. He's, he suffered a lot. The body was then dismembered at the wrists, the ankles, the elbows, the knees, the shoulders, the hips, and finally the head. And then he was to be buried in an unmarked grave. Now, the one kind of saving grace is usually they dosed up the the people who were to be executed with opium. Oh, okay. But here's the thing. Everybody thought for a while that it was meant to alleviate the pain. But in reality, they dosed them up with opium to prevent them from going into shock and dying. Right. So they wanted to elongated even more by not allowing their body to go into shock from the pain. So they would remain alive longer Longer. during the cuttings. Yeah. Until they deemed that the execution was finally over. Like I said, this was banned in 1905. This did happen on Halloween in 1904. Granted, probably weren't celebrating Halloween the same way that we are, but it was an execution that occurred on that day. Okay. All right. So this next one is the convoluted one. And at the very end, it's kind of weird because it wound up becoming a scientific experiment for this execution. 
which sounds really weird, but <laughs> yeah. keep up. <laughs> okay. May 9th, 1938, Oliver R. Meredith Jr., who was 52, was found shot and bleeding to death in his car one evening, and he was taken to his apartment building where he died from his wounds. A 38 caliber casing was found near his car, which corresponded with the bullets that were recovered from his body. Now, in addition, there had been a carjacking on May 7th, so two days prior, against Maurice L. Howe and his wife, Lucy. Now, the carjacking had the same caliber bullets involved, and this couple pointed the finger at a man named John, who, and this man had robbed him of $11. And this all occurred in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. So okay. police found a 38 Colt automatic that was sold for $3 about a week after Oliver's murder to a pawnbroker in Reno, Nevada. Now, Salt Lake City to Nevada, it sounds like it's far, but it's nope. It's maybe two know. hours. Yeah, I have to look it up, but this is not very far. No, it's relatively it's reasonable close, so. to expect somebody to go from Salt Lake City to Reno, Nevada. But very quickly. And so it's not as far as you would think. So they were able to trace this particular firearm back to a man named John Deering. Now, everything connected. And on July 29th, 1938, John was arrested in Michigan for a robbery at Hamtrak Finance Company. Okay, so now John, he didn't want to serve time in Michigan, so he did something wild and crazy, and he instead confessed to the kidnapping of the house, who he carjacked, and the killing of Oliver in Salt Lake City. So okay. we'll get into John's history and why he chose confessing to those in Salt Lake rather than serving seven to ten years in Michigan. Okay. All right, so... He was raised in Chicago, Illinois. He was born September 1898. He was neglected, sent to a reformatory from the age of 13 to 18. He then joined the United States Merchant Marine when he turned 18, but he was soon arrested and he wound up serving time in San Quentin, which we've talked about before, as well as Folsom, which Johnny Cash sang a song about. And because of these previous incarcerations, he knew that he didn't want to spend time in prison. And that's why he confessed to homicide, which would sentence him to death rather than an elongated prison sentence. Okay. So he didn't want to go to prison for the robbery. So he confesses to these, to the murder and the carjacking. So that kid, yeah, it wound up being kidnapping. Yeah. So hopefully he would be sentenced to death rather than a prison sentence. Okay. I mean, sure. It is what it is. And people make life choices. Mm -hmm. So then while he was being, you know, transported and everything, he admitted to killing another man on a train and he dumped his body in the swamp. But obviously this could never be confirmed because he was not specific as to where on the train, where in the swamp, anything along those lines. But it's also believed that he may have confessed to this to ensure a death penalty. Multiple homicides. Yeah. Okay. So he was transferred back to Utah for his trial and sentencing, and John was also fingered for the shooting of two police officers in Salt Lake City, as well as another in Portland, Oregon, and a few other murders. So we're going to talk about those few other murders that they were thinking John Deering did. Okay. Was this, this based is where we, on firearms evidence? They were linking through? It was based on like similar cases that were happening around the same area at the same time. Okay. So- This is where we start getting convoluted and we start jumping a little bit. Hang on. So we're going to jump over to Idaho because it was believed that this crime was also connected to John Deering. We're in Twin Cities, Idaho, May 24th. So remember the murder of Oliver happened May 9th. 
he was found and arrested in Michigan, July 29th. So this is in that gap. Okay. So May 24th, 1938, two months before John was captured that day, Earl Lowry, who was the clerk at park hotel called about a vehicle parked in their alley for days and noted a smell. Again, we've said this before you smell decomp once, you know, that smell for the rest of your life. There's no mistaking it. You walk by a car, you smell this, call the cops, please. We, we don't want to deal with juices. Police chief Howard Gillette went there and the vehicle was a blue 1936 V8 Ford sedan. There was something in the front seat covered with a canvas, not quite a blanket, just kind of more of a fabric tarp. The windows were all fogged up, decomp. The doors were all locked. So they wound up breaking into the car and under the canvas was the body of a man. They shut the doors and had the car towed without searching it at the scene. And it was taken to a garage where it was officially inspected. We still do this to this day. Vehicle searches are scheduled in an enclosed environment that we can control everything just to make sure no outside influence. So if we can move the car, we're moving it. And that's what they did. And this is way back in 1938. So good job. But they didn't move the car quick enough. Because people had started to gather, the news got a hold of it, they started spilling out into the ears, and eventually a local jewelry store owner, former mayor, Duncan McDougall, Duncan McDougall Johnston, he called police and he basically said, my friend, 33-year-old George Olson, was missing and that might be him. Okay. Now, super random, but okay, if he's been missing for this length of time, you know what kind of car he drives. By all means. So they had Duncan come to the garage and identify the decedent who was still in the car. The man was wearing a gray checker business suit, white shoes. He had some blood stains present, but he was so swollen from decomp that Duncan couldn't be sure if it was 100% George, but he said it looked like the clothing that George wears. Okay. Now, following up on this lead, police did confirm that the vehicle did belong to a man named George Olson from Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. Now things here start getting a little bit shady because Duncan allegedly owned the Decker Jewelry Company where George worked a substantial sum of money that had been loaned in 1936. At this point, it was known that George, well, in Twin Cities, Iowa, was supposed to collect the payment of that loan from Duncan. Now, Duncan okay. told the Deckers, I paid George, I have the receipt, but George wasn't found with any money on him. Okay. So, like huh. I said, we're, we're, we're getting convoluted on this one. Okay. So now Duncan seems a little suspicious. A little bit, a little coming bit. Coming under the radar of the police because there's this loan. Yes. that There's is- a loan. They're friends. He's the one who called him missing. So things are just getting a little bit okay. So George was brought in for examination, his official autopsy, and he had been shot in the back of his head and his head was swollen. They took x-rays to find the bullet. And I don't even know if we still do that these days or when that was implemented or anything along those lines. I don't do autopsies, so I have no information. With Wilhelm Rotengen's discovery of the x-rays in 1895, it became really readily apparent to doctors that x-rays could be utilized to localize the the shrapnel in somebody's body including bullets as well as broken bones and this was specifically applied to soldiers on the battlefield because at the time they were 
in wars. And this is a German scientist. And so the first military use of this x-ray was literally the next year after the discovery of x-rays in 1896. And this was the war between Italy and Abyssinia at the time. Okay. And this was used in subsequently in most wars, including several of the British colonies. So the Greco-Turkish War, or the Spanish-American War in 1898. So this is a long time ago. But I guess the most well-known and kind of famous use of x-rays to look for shrapnel and bullets, specifically in war, was World War I. And this was Madame Curie. So okay. we remember she was Polish, and her her real name was Marie Sklodowska. And And before you keep going, I'm going to say, remember everything about Madame Curie, because it will be coming up in an upcoming episode that we cover for Radium Girls. Oh, okay. So remember everything Miss Mayday is telling you about (laughs) Madame Curie, because she is super important. Yes. And she was basically encouraged by a French physicist at that time. His name was Henri Becquerel, and he had... Um, discovered sort of an interesting thing about x-rays and that he noticed that these rays were being given off by certain crystals, notably uranium. So this was kind of a variation on the x-ray technology that was being used after it had been discovered in 1895 by the German scientist Rotengen. So then Madame Curie continues her, her research and she extracts radioactive radium from pitch blend ore in 1898. So this is all kind of happening at the same time in the advent of the original discovery by the German scientists. After three German bombs fell in Paris in September of 1914, she evacuates her and her research staff and moves her radiation research to an institute in Bordeaux, which is in France. And so she starts continuing that research and teaching about radiation and x-rays. Then kind of fast forward, the French government and director of the Red Cross at that time gets funds from donors. And by October 1914, so during World War I, she funds the construction of 20 vehicles that are now equipped with x-ray equipment to be used in the mobile x-rays mobile x-rays love it so the downside of this was that now you needed a way for electricity to be generated right in order to power these x-rays and so this was in the form of giant truck engines so it was very bulky but it was literally revolutionary it was the first time that they could have these mobile triage and send out these mobile x-ray stations with red cross so she and, basically made a mobile generated. They used a generator, an old school finangled MacGyvered generator. Yeah, from truck engines. Yep. To do mobile x-rays during World War One. Right. So she sent brilliant. These, yeah. So she sent these out to the front lines. Previous to that, that was not possible because there was no consistent source of electricity. Mm-hmm. So then in addition to these 20 some odd mobile x-ray vehicles, She also helped establish 200 stationary x-ray facilities 
with consistent electrical, you know, sources kind of in the rear of battlefields. So wherever, wherever there was an actual battlefield, she created this stationary facility where then soldiers could be transported to if they were not in the location of the immediate mobile unit, right? And her first assistant was actually her 17-year-old daughter, Irene, who one day she herself would also win the Nobel Prize around this time, because we know Madame Curie does ultimately end up winning the Nobel Prize for this. Around this time during the war, by 1916, she's teaching and training other women to become x-ray assistants. And she used her 1903 Nobel Prize money to basically fund this. She purchased war bonds and she used this generated income to continue training. By 1919, she started offering courses to American soldiers. And so this is how now it's becoming a part of Americans' doctors mm-hmm. and they're utilizing x-rays for looking for shrapnel and bullets. So by 1938, this is common practice. Love it. Yeah. Okay. So because of everything that she did, um, they were able to recover the bullet from his head, but what they couldn't find is any sort of powder burns. So they weren't quite sure how far the firearm was from the back of his head. And this is because he was so decomposed. So they couldn't find a gunshot residue because I believe that only sticks around for what, like five hours, something like that. Yeah. It's literature out there just says that it's sort of ephemeral. And also you have to be standing within a relatively close distance. Right. And Uh, that's if you don't soup it off. Right. Yeah. Like, or wash it off or, and then if there's any object in the way, it's going to kind of not allow it to settle onto someone's face. It might, you know, get on their hand if they put their hand up. And because it was the back of the head, you couldn't really get stippling because his hair was in the way. Yeah. So So clothing or hair, yes, will impede the ability to visualize GSR. So that with the added decomp, I, yeah, it doesn't, it sounds very reasonable that one would not be able to see it. Right. And so like, yeah, they were just having a real hard time figuring out how far away he was shot, but either way, Another weird thing is his pants pockets were pulled inside out, but whoever it was had left 82 cents and a red notebook on him. Now, 82 cents doesn't seem like a lot, but remember we're in the 1930s. That's actually significant, like a $20 bill left behind. So they thought it was a robbery, but he still had money on him. And then his other pockets that weren't turned out, they had $52 in them. They kind of officially ruled out robbery at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, the bullet that was recovered from it went through the back of his head, lodged in his neck, fracturing two vertebrae, and then they removed it from there. I believe it was a 25 caliber. We'll come back to that. And his autopsy showed that he died three to four days previous to when he was found, meaning he that would have been I forget which day he was found. Oh, May 24th. May 24th. So he so. would have, it would have been like May 20th. Okay. All right. So it was also shown that he would have died within minutes of being shot. And he was shot while sat in the front seat of his own car. His tank, his gas tank was full of gas, indicating that the car had not driven far since being filled up. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where the Deckers come in. So they traveled from Salt Lake City to Idaho to ID his body. 
And they were able to say that it was George based on his dental plate, as well as an appendectomy scar. And apparently he had two notably crooked toes. I, I would not be able to identify my friend's toes. I apologize to all my friends. Okay. I don't know what your toes look like, but they were able to identify him based on this. Okay. All right. So this is officially George. So his brothers, Max and Willis and Wayne Decker, who owned the Decker Jewelry Company, they went to Duncan's Jewelry Store because George, aside from collecting the debt, was also supposed to have dropped off like samples, like jewelry samples at Duncan's store. And they wanted to go look at what he left behind. Now, okay, everything that George had taken with him from Salt Lake to Idaho. 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 They weren't there. Okay. Now. Okay. They so, weren't at the yeah, store and they weren't in his vehicle. Getting weird. All right. Okay. This is why I told you. This one's convoluted. <laughs> All right. So now the good news is the Decker company kept meticulous records on their jewelry. And some of them even had markings that they knew where they were. That meant that they could identify their jewelry if somebody like stole it and tried to resell it. Okay. So smart right. businessmen for sure. Okay. All right. So a little bit. Who he George. was. Yeah. George. I mean. I couldn't find a whole lot. So he was married. He had three kids, eight, seven, and a three-year-old. And because Duncan claimed he was such a good friend, he jumped headfirst into the investigation. We all know about this and, and you know, shoving yourself into an investigation is always red flag. Mm -hmm. And the police, they welcomed him with open arms because he was a pillar of the community. We've talked about this before. He served in World War and at the Mexican border conflict that happened. He was a vice commander of the Idaho American Legion. He also, like I said, was the former mayor and he did so well. He was reelected. So he served four years as the town mayor. Okay. Like this guy was loved. He told police he last saw George at 11 a.m. on Saturday. And that's when George dropped off the jewelry case samples. But by Tuesday, so four days later, he became concerned because George had not swung back by to pick up the samples. And that's why he said he called. Okay. But where are these jewelry samples? Because they're not at the store. Right. And yeah. they're, they're not in the vehicle either. No. Okay. Now, we may think that the police were blinded to him because he was such an upstanding member of the community, but they weren't blind because he was overly distraught about George's murder. Okay. <sighs> kind of thing. <laughs> okay. So his um, sort of over-exaggerated emotional response, plus the fact that he had a huge debt. Did he yeah. not? Okay. And the jewelry samples are missing and he's trying to help out wherever he can with this investigation. Okay. So police are like, okay, there's a lot of curious stuff surrounding you, Duncan, but we're just going to keep going with our investigation. Mm -hmm. And now all of this is happening in Idaho, but remember, George is from Salt Lake City. And so the police departments were actually in contact with each other. And that's why the discussion of the murder of Oliver on oh, May okay. 9th came up. And that's how they believed. They were like, hey, we have a shooting. The guy was found dead in his car. Robbery was a maybe. We have whatever's going on. They could okay. be connected. Okay. And so they were pursuing that theory as well. Maybe there was somebody traveling states killing people. Okay. All right. So the chief had an idea to bug Duncan's jewelry store 
because okay. like I said, they weren't completely blind, but they were like, you know, we don't have anything on him. So let's see if there's anything sketchy. And so they had a microphone. They went through a neighboring store while they were in the basement. They were like, oh, this spot is perfect to put a microphone because it's very well hidden. Mm-hmm. In that spot, while they were getting ready to place the microphone, they found a hand towel that was tied all up. Okay. Well, when they untied it, it had the missing jewelry, 557 rings to be exact. Oh my gosh. Okay. Then they found another envelope containing two rings and a key that fit George's vehicle and the firearm. Oh, okay. okay. They found the firearm. Oh, they found the firearm. So in this like weird cubby hidey hole that they found by total accident because they were trying to bug the jewelry store. Yeah. Okay. They found all of this. Okay. Yeah. And so the two rings in the envelope were confirmed to belong to the Decker shop. Okay. Okay. And then remember all the markings, they were able to identify a lot of the other rings as belonging to the Decker shop as well. Okay. Duncan was officially arrested. (laughs) Like you can't get away with that. And he was brought to trial November 28th. His trial lasts for two weeks. The jury found him guilty of first degree murder with life in prison, but we're not done yet because there were numerous parole denials until his seventh parole denial on his seventh parole where he was going up in 1944. He was pardoned for the murder. So he served what? Six years for murder. At least. Yeah. If they had a parole hearing every year. Yeah. So now why do you ask he was paroled? The new attorney general, Bert H. Miller, did not believe that he was convicted justly because there was no definitive proof that Duncan was the one who fired the shot, just that he robbed him. Okay. And had the firearm. Yeah. All right. All right. Because at this time, we would not have had DNA analysis. We wouldn't have been able to do like touch DNA on the firearm potentially to see but I mean, whose firearm was it? His. It was orig- yeah, it was registered to him. So all of those sort of things are, you know, presented to the jury and the jury thought there was enough there tying him to the firearm that was used to murder George. So yep. but okay. the attorney general, but the attorney general says, OK, in 1944, he says there's not enough here to hold you. Yep. Pardons him. OK, so he was released in 1944. Now. For him, there was also like a weird suicide in Nevada that happened and he was named in this suicide, the woman who committed suicide's will. And so everybody was like, well, that's weird, but they couldn't again pin anything on him. Okay. And he wound up dying officially 1989 in San Mateo, California at the age of 90. All right. Okay. We had to include that because he was initially fingered for that murder. Until it was discovered that he was not guilty. Uh, this is John we're back to, by the way. John Deering. Okay. Until it was officially discovered that he was not guilty of that murder. So yeah, it occupied Salt Lake City's police equally while the Idaho police were investigating to see if John Deering was connected. Okay. So spoiler, not connected. Okay. Yeah, because the firearm calibers were different, right? Yes, 38 and 25. Right. And then obviously... Duncan was involved in George's murder. Right. Regardless of being pardoned. Okay. All right. This next one, I could not figure out how they connected this to John Deering, but maybe you guys can. I don't know. But this is listed as an associated crime of John Deering without him being officially convicted. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start in Berkeley, California. Yep. That's Miss Mayday's uh, (laughs) alma alma mater mater town. (laughs) 
Um, and we're with the From family. Fromy, From. I'm calling them From. From, yeah. Weston, who was 50, was born in 1888 in Pennsylvania, and he was an executive at the Atlas Powder Company that manufactured explosives at the time. His wife, Hazel, was 49. She was born also in 1888 in Wisconsin. And the couple had two daughters, Nancy and Mata. Nancy was born in 1915. I, I don't know Mata's age, but they were prominent in the Northern California area because they were well off for the time. Okay. And in fact, to state how well off, Nancy was gifted a brand new silver Packard as a college graduation present from her dad because he had won the car in a raffle. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, recently, Nancy's fiance had broken up with her. And so she wanted to get away, clear her head. And she decided it was a good time to visit her sister, Mata, who had recently gotten married to a Marine who was stationed at Paris Island in South Carolina. Which super fun. When my sister was in her Marine boot camp, she was in Paris Island. Oh, okay. So, wow. So it's a long standing <laughs> history of yeah, marine um, training centers. Very much so. So Hazel was not about ready to let her daughter drive cross country alone, even though she was a grown adult. And she basically said, I'm coming with you. Okay. And Nancy was like, Cool, you know, I, I'd rather not do the drive alone anyway. They wound up leaving March 23rd, 1938. But unfortunately, the road trip never made it further east than Texas because the car had engine trouble. So they went to a repair shop and they had to wait for the replacement parts. This yeah. Is every horror movie that has ever happened, which is very fitting for Halloween. I was just thinking that, like, like, wow, this is the premise for so many horror films. Right. Okay. So they're waiting for their car to be repaired in yes. Texas. Yes. And so they had to wait for five days. So they're trucking around Texas and Juarez, uh, Juarez, Mexico, because it's right there on the border, just spending their time being like, woo, for five days, mother, daughter having fun. They wound up picking up their car because it did get repaired. So they picked it up March 30th. They asked for directions to Dallas and they were back on the road again. This is like every horror movie that's yeah. been written. <laughs> like okay. Yep. So now they're going from. El Paso to Dallas, supposedly. Yes, allegedly. I mean, yeah. Okay. And now, so they're back on the road. Their car, unfortunately, was found on the side of the road, 11 miles from, I don't know how to say that town name, Balmoria. Balmoria. Yeah. yeah. And it was by a couple of army surveyors. So they found the car and they were like, well, this is weird. So they wound up reporting it to the local sheriff's office because it wasn't really their jurisdiction. Okay. The car was unlocked. The keys were in the ignition, but nothing was inside. All their luggage was gone. Nobody abandons their car like that. The spare tire, I, I don't know how they figured this out, but the spare tire in the car was missing the inner tube. Okay. Maybe the car pulled over because they had a flat, but then why would the spare have the missing inner tube? Right. It's not like you replace the inner tube on the side yeah, of the road. Yeah, because I mean, the theory is like maybe they had a tire go bad and then they needed to fix it. And that's why they're pulled over. Yeah, some good Samaritan checked, came by. Yeah, but they checked the spare tire and it was missing the inner tube. So that theory goes out the water. Right. This is back when tires were a little bit different than tires are today. Yeah. So, yeah. so things are just wonky, like with this car. Okay. And they saw that it was a California license plate. They looked up who the owner was and they contacted Weston, who admitted that his wife and daughter were traveling to South Carolina and their path would have taken them through Texas. Mm -hmm. So Weston's now panicking. Right. Like his, his wife and child are missing. Yep. So police took the car 
this is where I get weird. They get behind the wheel and they start driving the car along the road, stopping anybody saying, did you see two women in this car? Huh? Okay. I know. Super weird, but no one had seen it. And so the police search went even wider. Even the Coast Guard was called in. Like just all hands on deck find because they are wealthy Right. For class citizens. So they called in everybody. Five days later, a lead happened. So an El Paso truck driver named Jim Millam, he had a weird story. He saw a silver Packard pass him with two women in the front seats. And this is west of Sierra Blanca. But there was a dark coupe following not far behind, driven by a man with a woman in the passenger seat. Two hours later, he saw the same dark coupe coming back at him, but this time a woman was driving. 20 miles later, the Packard came by, this time driven by a man. Okay. Okay. Really? I can't believe this guy paid attention to this. I would never be able to notice this stuff. (laughs) Maybe at the time there wasn't a lot of vehicles on the road. (laughs) I don't know. But yeah, very very specific details. Yeah. And not only that, he remembered exactly where it happened. And so he took police to where you know, this kind of 20 mile stretch is. Mm -hmm. And in that 20 mile stretch, they found Hazel and Nancy's bodies. They were 56 miles West of where their car was found. Oh, shame. Okay. All right. Again, we're getting gross. The women did not die easy. They had both been beaten, stomped, choked. There was evidence of torture because Nancy had cigarette burns all over her. She had a ruptured diaphragm and a ruptured stomach. Hazel had a large bite ripped out of her arm they bit so hard and then you know picture like a dog shaking their head and ripping off a piece of meat that's what her arm looked like both women had been stripped to their underwear left face down but no sexual assault had taken place none of their jewelry had been removed and they were finally killed being shot in their head so okay it it, it was a brutal death the police started arresting people They found a man named Roman Trotsky, who had been staying in the same hotel as the women while they had waited for their car. Police took him into custody and found out that he had other aliases. He had been convicted of performing an illegal procedure, quote unquote, in Minnesota, which was an illegal abortion at the time that had led to the patient's death. But it was determined that he had no connection to Hazel and Nancy's murder, even though, you know, he he ain't a good man. Well, I mean, he might. I don't know. He fell under suspicion. Okay. And then they cleared him. Yes. There were a few more suspects brought in for questioning, but no official arrest for murders. An iron worker named Jack Ferguson was questioned after attempting to sell a bag of women's clothing. He told police they were his wife's clothes and he was selling them because she left him. It was found that this was the truth. So the, the weird thing about the clothing is they were two different sizes and those two different size of clothing corresponded with Hazel and Nancy sizes. But it also allegedly corresponded with his wife's clothing, ex-wife, whatever she was. Mm -hmm. So he was released. Okay. There was another theory that the vehicle was mistaken as a drug runner's car, because remember, this is near the border and this Mm -hmm. is a brand new fancy looking Packard. Yeah. This was never confirmed, but some thought it would explain the torture of the women. Okay. They wanted to know where the drugs were Mm -hmm. and why the luggage was taken. Mm -hmm. So... Now, the man who brought the police to the bodies, the truck driver, he was thought to be a suspect, but he was cleared. Some thought it was a jealous woman who was having an affair with Weston who wanted revenge. So she followed the women all the way to Texas to do this to them. Okay. Now, author Clint Richmond suggests that it was Nazis 
in his book, Fetch the Devil. I didn't oh, read the book, so I'm not 100% okay. sure how this is correlated, I, in yeah, all honesty. I've not heard of this book. I'll have to look into it. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't have a chance to read it, but he says it was Nazis. Leads dried up. There was yeah. a reward for $10,000 offered for information, but no one ever claimed it. I tried really hard to read the FBI files on this case, but the way that they scanned it, all the words were mushed together. So I... I tried to get as much information from the FBI files because there is a substantial amount, but I didn't want to try and piece the puzzle pieces together and get it wrong. So I apologize. Poor Mata. She did not have a, any good luck in her life <laughs> for a while because her mom and sister were murdered. Her husband that she, remember she had recently married Benjamin Lee McMakin had gone mm -hmm. off to fight in World War II and he was serving as a major when he was captured while a POW and when he was returned, quote unquote, he had died of his wounds. So most likely torture. Mm -hmm. And that was May of 1942 at the age of 32. For his role, he was awarded a Purple Heart and a Gold Star. She did remarry in 1948 to another Marine, Colonel Robert A. McGill. He died in 1983 at the age of 70. And she died in 2001 at the age of 85. I didn't find any record of them having children. Weston, I couldn't find him ever remarrying, and he died in 1973 at the age of 85 with, and this family never had resolution to who killed Hazel and Nancy. Mm, so okay. no one was ever held accountable for their murders, and this is linked to John as it falls within the, the time gap of the murder, I believe, as well as the fact that they were eventually shot. Okay. But other than that, I really don't know... Why, Why they're connecting him to this potentially. Yeah, it, it was super weird to me. Okay. But well, uh, maybe I, I mean at the time it's just like you have a guy who's confessing to murders and they're kind of murders dealing with vehicles and shooting people in vehicles and carjacking. Yeah. So maybe they just got I guess grasping that at straws. You well, know? and also John Deering, he did kidnap a couple, which means that he's not opposed to carjacking when there's two people in the car. Right. And he never officially robbed anybody either. Right. So I guess, okay, I'm, I'm seeing how they're connecting this a little. And it was before the murder of Oliver. Right. So, okay, okay, I can see this. All right. So back to John Deering. Regardless of any other murders he might have committed, he was charged with the murder of Oliver on August 1st. By September 19th, he admitted his guilt of shooting Oliver while trying to steal his car. He asked for execution. <laughs> he, the court recorded him as not guilty. And he got really mad about this. He's like, no, I am completely guilty. I'm pleading guilty. I want to be executed. Why are you having me plead not guilty? I don't want this. And they even suggested calling Oliver's widow as a witness against him in a trial that he didn't even want to happen. So he didn't see the need for Oliver's widow to have to come there and relive everything so he reconfessed with a plea of guilty and th there was still a trial and yeah. the jury finally gave him what he wanted and he was declared guilty and sentenced to death by firing squad. That is really weird. <laughs> like, it's really weird how much he wanted to be executed for this murder. Right? Yeah. I, 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 it is what it is. Okay. It's not so, what we commonly see, but okay. All right. So now we're going to get into how this became a science experiment. All right. On October 30th, 1938, John ate his last meal and told his lawyer, the warden and the chaplain that he needed to be an actor. So nobody knew what he was feeling. 
Okay. He knew he was going to be death by firing squad. So he basically said, even though I'm, you know, that was his way of saying, even though I'm afraid, I need to pretend I'm not afraid. Okay. Okay. So this is when he said that he was going to agree to let physicians monitor his heart during his execution. So the morning of Halloween, he was taken to the execution chamber at Sugar House Prison, where 75 people gathered to witness the shooting. Now step in Dr. Stephen H. Beasley, the state prison physician, and he performed his experiment. This involved hooking him up to an electrocardiogram, right. which we still use those today, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay. So electrocardiogram is also called an ECG or an EKG. Okay. So if you've heard those terms, that's what this is referring to. And an electrocardiogram records the electrical signals in the heart. It's really common, painless, and it's a test that we use to detect heart problems and monitor heart's health. So if you are at risk for heart attack, they tend to give you this vest that you wear and it records all of these electrical signals and it gives the doctors an idea of what's going on with your heart. He couldn't wear a vest because he was supposed to be shot in the heart. But what they did is they attached these electric sensors to his wrists. And then this just seems cruel to me. They then pinned a target over his heart. So the firing squad wouldn't miss what the doctor wanted them to hit, which was the heart. Yes. So there's five shooters, but they only hand out, they only load four of the guns. And none of them know which one does not have a loaded firearm. So they don't know which one officially fired the kill shot. And this is, I guess, to alleviate their um, guilt of being an executioner. Right. So that's what they did. And now his heart monitor, it showed that it went from 72 beats per minute to 180 when they strapped him in, basically showing a spike in fear. Mm -hmm. And each of the five shooters were paid $50 to do this. John's last words were goodbye and good luck. Okay, let it go. Okay. This guy is, he, he's crazy to me. Um, the readings from the ECG said that his heart spasmed for four seconds after the shooting and then gradually stopped 15.6 seconds later. And his rest, the rest of his body functions continued for a while before he was actually officially declared dead about two minutes later. So the entire thing, I guess it, from firing squad, it takes your body about two minutes to die, which yeah. is weird to me. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like sit there and time it and count every second. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I a mean, long time. It, it, that's just crazy to me. He was uh, 40 at the time of his execution. Mm-hmm. And the doctor told the press the next day that his stoicism was a front and he was actually terrified during the execution. That just seems cruel to me. Granted, he's a murderer. Okay. Don't get me wrong we hate him he's a murderer but that doctor didn't have to spill his tea yeah yeah well i guess it was part of the experiment he did agree to it so yeah and he was gonna try to be stoic about it and then this is kind of a showing a physical measure of like how much that's not actually true because he was he was acting quote unquote yeah and i guess his widow his victim's widow probably was like good i'm glad he was scared Um, John did do a little bit of good in his death because his eyes were removed for a corneal transplant to someone in San Francisco, a 27 year old blind man. And that was a success. The blind man obviously is anonymous. John's body was then donated to the medical department of the university of Utah. Okay. All right. We have one more case for you before the end of the episode. Awesome. 
Okay, now we get our final executions. You heard that right. Three executions on the same day at the same prison for the same crime. Sort of. All right. These three men that we're going to talk about are Grady Brown, who's 27, James Charles Brooks, who went by JC, 27, and Thurman Jefferson Munn, also 27, 1947. (laughs) So all 27 year olds in 1947. And I could not find why they were all in prison. I tried so hard to find their prison records, but the only prison records are their execution. But either way, they were in prison and they were being supervised by the State Highway Patrol and Public Works Commission, who were assigned to the prison camp in Henderson County, North Carolina. March 3rd, 1947, they were working at a rock quarry and they waited for a dynamite charge to be set off. And this was the moment they were waiting for. It was the time for their prison break. Gordon Morgan was in the guard shack when Brown, so Grady Brown, entered and overpowered him. Brooks and Munn followed. So he shoves his way into the shack, wrestles with Gordon. The other two come in. In the struggle, Gordon wound up falling down an embankment. And then Brooks had gotten the rifle from Gordon and he shot at him. Well, Brooks, or I'm sorry, Gordon, down in the in the cliffside, pulls out his firearm and starts returning fire. Well, this all commotion brought the other guard, 53-year-old George Bowman, to come to try and help Gordon. Now, this is when Brooks pointed the rifle out a hole in the guard shack and shot and killed George. So George was coming to help and he wound up being the one that got killed. Okay. All three men then fled because this was their prison break, but all of them were recaptured within days. Okay. All three were brought to trial together for the murder. So this is like one of those laws. So even though one of them was the shooter, because there was only one rifle and he admitted to being the shooter. The law at the time held them equally culpable. Okay. So all three, it's equal. And we have this today. I was talking with Miss Mayday about it. It's like the whole getaway driver thing. Yeah. Like this is kind of common sometimes where the law will actually allow them to be tried uniformly for the same thing, even though only one person like theoretically is responsible for the homicide. Yeah. And right. it's basically to try and prevent people from becoming like accessories. Say, Thank you. I was, tr- the word I had was acquaintances. <laughs> yeah. So instead of kind of trying them at different levels and saying, okay, you're an, you're an accessory to murder. You're just getting tried for equally responsible for this murder. So, yeah. And it okay. was because all three of them planned together as a group. And that plan involved obtaining the rifle that Brooks would eventually use to shoot and kill the man. All right. So their plan was actually for all three of them that Brooks would be the first one in to get the rifle because he was the one who actually knew how to use it. And the other two would be there to prevent anything else from happening. I don't think that they realized that Gordon was going to be shoved down the cliff. So I think that the thought was that they would keep him contained. Yeah. They'd like maybe hold him hostage, tie him up and then escape. Exactly. And so they all were found guilty of the murder and they had all of their appeals denied. Okay. Okay. So it's so weird that we're covering all different methods of execution in this episode, because now we are in lethal gas, which in North Carolina, it wasn't that long before this case that lethal gas replaced electrocution. 
Yes. Um, and we kind of spoke about this in previous episodes with regards to lots of states kind of changing their death penalty from electrocution to lethal gas. Okay. This was because there was one specific execution in 1917 that prompted North Carolinans to question whether electrocution was quote unquote, cruel and unusual punishment. And if it were, then therefore it was an unconstitutional action. So that year, Rufus Satterfield was electrocuted for over six minutes before being deemed dead. So this was in 1917 and this electrocution just went wildly wrong and they just kept trying to kill him for six minutes. How? Electrocution and then electric chair. They just- No, I meant like, how did it go so wrong? He just wouldn't die. And so, you know, they have the doctor who goes back into the room to check to see if this person is deceased and the heart is still beating. My gosh. And so Rufus Satterfield, with whatever mental state he was in, it didn't matter. He was not legally dead yet. Wow. For six minutes. And so at that time, this is why North Carolinans, upon hearing this, they thought like, well, maybe this is cruel and unusual because this person is not dying quickly, you know, and people could suffer. And so a senator at that time, Charles Peterson, who was also a medical doctor from Mitchell County, proposed this bill that would replace electrocution with lethal gas. And so this was proposed to the citizens of North Carolina that we were going to, we, as in the state of North Carolina, would change their official method of execution. Dr. Peterson argued that lethal gas was more humane. So that bill ended up passing unanimously on May 1st, 1935. That's why by the time these three were brought to trial and then sentenced to execution, they were now getting lethal gas. Cool. Well, I mean, not cool, but I forget, and I don't know if you've covered this or if you even know, what is the lethal gas that they use? Sometimes it's a combination. So I don't know at the time of 1947 in North Carolina, I would have to look it up, but typically it's like a modernly, it's a concoction of, I think, three gases that they do in a sequence. Okay. But I, I don't know. My instinct says that it is probably the same gas that's used in the death chambers during the war. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Xylocon B. Yeah. Xylocon B. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I would have to look it up for the 1940s. Sorry to spring that one on you. No, it's it's fine. Oh, that's a fair question. I think we also talked about it in a previous episode with regards to gas chamber. And that's kind of how that sort of started happening and transitioning here in the United States for executions. Right. Post, you know, World War II. But yeah, nowadays I'm not quite sure. And most states these days have lethal injection. So it's yeah. a little different. And again, it's the same kind of concept where there's multiple chemicals used. Right. And this is just to sort of quickly administer death. And also usually it's sort of done in a sequence in which the person will go unconscious. And so they're not feeling any of the, you know, the death at that point. Yeah, I do remember that sometimes the executioner will tell the prisoner, just immediately take a big deep breath. Like a lot of people, I guess, try and hold their breath. Right. I think that's people's natural instinct is to not breathe in the gas that's filling in the room, obviously. (laughs) 
And that's, I think, impulse, you know, but okay. Okay. So these three. Yeah. On Halloween, 1947, the Raleigh central prison, all three men were taken to the gas chamber and sequentially executed. So it was kind of one right after the other, after the other. And there was even a fourth execution that day, Leslie Lester Stanley, but I couldn't find anything else on his case other than that. He was executed for murder as well. At now, the same prison, same prison, same day. So technically there are four, four. people executed hmm. on Halloween day in Raleigh central prison okay. in 1947. And that kind of culminated to 10 total executions for the month of October at this prison. And that it culminated again in one of the highest spikes of executions in a single year in North Carolina. Huh? Yeah. It, it, so 1947 was a big year for North Carolina to execute people. That was the year to not commit murder in North Carolina. I can tell you that right now. Yeah. All right. So to wrap up this episode, because this was a lot of death and murder and convolution, Miss Mayday, who is the scariest bodybuilder of all time? I don't know. Who? Dr. Frankenstein. Oh, <laughs> wait. So. Dr. Frankenstein, wouldn't it be Dr. Frankenstein? Oh, bodybuilder. Okay. <laughs> got it. Got it. He built a body. <laughs> yes. He would be the scariest bodybuilder. Okay. Right. I got it. Cute. Okay. <laughs> it's a slow burn. It's fine. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. We're talking about the monster, aren't we? No, yeah. you're right. Bodybuilder. <laughs> Get it. Cool. All right. So keep in mind, we do have one more Halloween episode coming up for you. So Enjoy your spooktober and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. See you next week. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.